Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you here as we head towards the weekend. Not a great weather weekend. It's not. Anthony Farnell will attempt to explain what's going wrong. Um, We're way behind now. Last year, we got a real break in March, didn't we? We were out doing stuff in March before things were closed up. We don't want to revisit all that. Not going into the weekend, but we don't have good weather. And he'll explain why. That might be the case. Pascal St. Ange is the Minister of Sport for the Liberal Federal Government. And we'll talk about expansion of BMO, some of our athletes' accomplishments, um, and the expansion, of course, for the 2026 World Cup. Canada, uh, a slight step closer with the uh, tie of Panama uh, against Honduras uh, last night to qualifying for the World Cup of Soccer directly to go to Qatar and be one of 32 teams in Qatar in November. So we'll talk to the minister about that project and that advancement and much, much more, including our Chatterbox segment. It's all coming up. Dr. Lori Turnbull on the show as well to talk some politics. Toronto Today begins now. This is a really interesting scenario with where we're coming to. I don't think anything's coming to a head per se in in Ukraine, But it is getting to the point where we're talking a lot more about where it all goes in the long term. It feels like we've gotten sort of settled in on the day to day uh, of some of this. And uh, the case that's being made potentially as well against chemical weapons being used. I, I think there's a risk, but I also think there's a desire among many to call the Russians bluff here. To do, and to call that their bluff about using chemical weapons, to call their bluffs against using nuclear weapons. And there could be a way, given how proud people are of how Ukraine pushing back, fighting back, um, there could be a way to push that bluff faster. Mariupol had gotten a lot of coverage this week. Kiev, yes, has as well, because Kiev has fortified and and uh, and it, it, they're intensely pushing the Russian invaders, if you will, back. But Mariupol will never be the same city again. Again, it's a city a little bit bigger than, say, London, Ontario. It's around 400,000 people. People know I grew up in London. So I can't imagine the city I grew up in and the size of it and scope of it. Again, you can get from north to south um, and west to east pretty quickly. So it's not it's not Toronto. No one's arguing that it is. It's not Hamilton. Um, but to have a city that probably will not rise again, that no one will live in, no one certainly will work in, that just looks impossible to rebuild under modern standards. Look, um, London was bombed in World War II. Um, Japan was obviously, Tokyo was leveled, Hiroshima was leveled, and they rebuilt those cities. You would never know that a nuclear bomb had hit uh, Japan if you went to any Japanese city right now. But it has been it has been 80 years. I'd argue probably it took 30 years to make the idea that it was bombed um, not feasible, that you would know it right away when you stepped into the city. There are people starving in Mariupol right now. There's reports now of deaths of hunger, not deaths because of uh, weaponry, not deaths because of uh, missile attacks or bombings or just Russians shooting you with machine guns in the streets. I think TV has really tried to downplay that but witnesses seem to report a large number of casualties that are similar to that but many people are just starving in the city and they can't get out to get where are you going for food you you run out of food take again a small smaller city four hundred thousand people four weeks in food can't come in food doesn't go out you'll run out you'll run out even in your own household, even if you could stay with your own household, you know that four weeks, and especially if you were taking people in, that'd be about all you'd have. 
and you'd have to have already like a big freezer chest. People that live in condominiums and apartments, you know what urban living's like. You tend to shop almost daily. I noticed that when I first came and visited people in big cities. They almost stop and get their dinner every night on the way home from work, or at least they used to. People that live in London, England, I see this. They go to they go to Sainsbury every night or every two nights, and they're constantly shopping. I don't like doing that. I like shopping for 10 days, and then I don't like going back. But I also realize that's impossible. So um, deaths of hunger in the city, heavy fighting. Uh, residents are supposed to close their windows at night that are still there because of just high smoke. That smoke will come right wafting through their bedroom window. You know how even how you smell a fire a little bit of ways away in your suburb or your residential area? Think of this amplified by 100. And it's it's the smell of, uh, to be honest, death. And it's the smell of conflict. And it's smoke. And it's buildings burning down. Like not just a fire, but fire after fire after fire. So um, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the uh, who's not Vladimir Klitschko, remember, they're different. I love the Klitschko brothers. I can't get enough of everything they're doing, and I can only imagine uh, what they're agonizingly going through. You know how sometimes there's just not a great question. Um, Vitaly Klitschko is the mayor of Kiev. Vladimir Klitschko uh, took this question. They both were fielding these questions the other day. Klitschko was asked by a U.K. journalist, a U.K. journalist, for evidence around him. And you can see, like, again, uh, it's. I think they held a news conference in the park or something. Charred out areas, burned out scenarios. They still want their no-fly zone. They've, they have vowed these are boxing legends. Everybody who's ever watched boxing knows who these two brothers are. They wouldn't fight each other. They're now in their mid-40s. And uh, Vladimir Klitschko laid it out and made it clear. I don't think he loved the question, to be honest, but he made it clear that there's more than enough evidence of atrocities against the Ukrainian people by the Russian invaders. How much of an evidence of the war crime you want to see when you have civilians killed? Over 300 children been injured and killed. How much more you want to see and support and not isolate Russia? Because every cent that is going to the Russian budget is going to be used for weapons that killing today killing literally today and in the past weeks our men women and children how much more of a war crime you want to see when even you're not safe here while you're standing here there is no guarantee that this war can end up on you too so there is nothing that possibly could be talk peacefully or good or to justify russian attack on the Ukrainian soil and Ukrainian population. That's former heavyweight champ Vladimir Klitschko. Um, he's right about all that. Um, late last night, I'm watching uh, Canada-Costa Rica play. I'm like, one day left of the week. Let's, you know, we, we can get our three hours, 45 minutes of sleep and still uh, do the show that we want to do. That, that'll that work. Um, I think that I, I believe there are human beings that need less than five hours of sleep a night. And I am one of those human beings. I do believe that. Uh, we don't all need eight. But here I saw that another on CNN, they announced another Russian general was dead. And I'm like, is this the same one as two days ago? There are 15 Russian commanders that have been killed in this invasion of Ukraine. And those are from independent media sources. Do I think Ukraine has some spin on this about the amount of Russians that are dead, the amount of tanks that are dead, what they've done with soldiers? Of course. 
let's be let's let's not be naive here and that's not being overly cynical ukraine wants the world to mobilize behind it so they also want to make clear that they're uh that they're fighting back and that there's potential here if they had just laid down their arms and said nothing we can do 27 days ago we've got a lot less intensity don't we in north america and western europe for this conflict, for watching it, for supporting it, for asking our government officials to fund it. Okay, you can't just print money and hand it to Ukraine. It's coming from somewhere. But um, the the Moscow is obviously underreporting um, those significant casualties. Fifteen Russian commanders. Imagine if Canada was somewhere and there were fifteen Canadian major generals, brigadier generals killed in the invasion of Afghanistan. We'd talk about it. And that's the most military leaders they've lost since World War II. And it makes perfect sense because Russia's losing uh, servicemen at a at a at a pace that is dissimilar to anything uh, since World War II. And they fought a 10 year war in Afghanistan. They did that from the late 70s, almost all the way till the end of the 80s. So (laughs) I don't know what morale is like, but you hear morale is bad. They're disorganized. They're using old equipment. It's just inconceivable, again, to go to, for America to go into Vietnam. This was the comparison made yesterday, and I jotted it down on a notepad. Uh, Twelve U.S. generals were killed over a decade in the Vietnam War. Twelve. A dozen. Fifteen Russians in a month. Fifteen Russian commanders in a month. So they are dropping, and they are dropping quickly. By the way, since the end of the Vietnam War, just one American general has died in combat. And you think about where they've gone. Iraq in 1990, Afghanistan in 2001 to fight the Taliban. Uh, they've been fighting, obviously, against ISIS throughout both the Obama and, yes, the Donald Trump uh, presidency. And obviously, they went into Iraq in 2003. One American general has died in all that combat. And it was an insider attack by an Afghan soldier who was a spy. So it's rather remarkable. Let me get to this clip really quick. Joe Biden saying there if there was an escalation of chemical or nuclear war, would would America respond in kind? And I want to explain his answer because he's getting castigated for it. Here's Joe Biden yesterday. Sir, you've made it very clear in this conflict that you do not want to see World War III. But is it possible that in expressing that so early that you were too quick to rule out direct military intervention in this war, could Putin have been emboldened knowing that you are not going to get involved directly in this conflict? No and no. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would it would trigger a response in kind, whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross. We'd make that decision at the time. Okay, let me just say quickly, that's being misunderstood as we'd respond with chemical weapons or we'd respond uh, in a nuclear capacity. And I don't see it in that. A response is a response. When he says in kind, it doesn't have to be the exact same scenario. And I think the question is really ill-timed and misguided from the get-go, which is, should you not have... Of course there's some bluffing happening here. Of course Putin doesn't think uh, the U.S. or any other army in the Western democracies of Europe are going to commit actual combat soldiers to this. But you never know. You never know, depending on how long this goes. This will be the worst March weather weekend for late March I think you've ever seen. I can't... I've never seen anything like it. 
And I don't know what's with our listeners right now. Um, yesterday, by the way, they did some... Uh, I know Canada played Costa Rica last night. As Dave mentioned, we lost. That's okay. Um, but I'm going to take my 13-year-old sit in the stands, I think, and wear like long underwear and toques and things like that when like April is like three days away. Um, I know. What will the Jamaicans think? They won't like it either. I, I got that. Well, that's why we made the Mexicans uh, play in Edmonton when they came up here. But uh, I've got this listener of Italian heritage who's criticizing Italy for Italy got knocked out stunningly to North Macedonia. Um, so they can't play in the World Cup in Qatar in uh, November. And he writes, Luciano writes, why does Italy remind me of the Leafs? Come on. They won the Euros. Last. They won something. You can't do that. That insults the Leafs. Italy, me, everybody. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogus, who's a Leafs fan. That ins- you can't say that. Um, he joins me uh, right now. That's wrong. We, we don't need any Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, carnage or slander on a Friday morning when we've got busy things to talk about. That's we got to straighten that guy out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, do. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. That's I was what. Thinking to myself, is it my turn to talk? It's, I don't normally talk about the least, but I can go all day. I know you can. I know you can. Do you have? A, are you optimistic? Well, how could it be worse than last year, being up three one on Montreal? Do you have optimism for next month? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think we're in a good place. <laughs> Got to work a little bit on the defense. Bolstered that up. We'll see what's right. The goalie situation. I don't think people care about my opinion on that. Oh, they do. They do. Very, Um, very strong one. uh, All right. So here we go. Uh, You you have uh, popularized the term wavelet over the last week. It sounds like something we'd get at at a restaurant as an appetizer. And if Uh, only if only it were that simple. But um, but you're not the first. But I think you're you're one of the most prominent voices saying we're in for a little bit of an uptick. Even Peter Uni, whether we are in on everything he's predicted or not, last week kind of to me last Thursday, Doctor Bogus shrugged his shoulders and said, "Yeah, this is gonna there's gonna be an uptick. This is gonna ding us, but it's not gonna like it's not December. It's not January. This is not gonna flood our hospital system." Yeah, exactly. For starters. I didn't invent the term wavelet. Uh, <laughs> it just means a small wave. Uh, some people really don't like that word. There's no value judgment <laughs> attached to it. It just is a small wave, uh, each to their own, I guess. But uh, that's just what it means. The point is, though, yeah, there are. we don't have a lot of testing in the province, so we're not entirely sure what the daily case count is. You can model. You can project it. The point is that it's likely going up. The wastewater surveillance from multiple parts of the province is headed northward. We know that's very reflective of the case count going up. And again, it's going to come to no one's surprise if, you know, in the days ahead, we'll see an uptick in in hospitalizations that are associated with that. Um, You know, is it going to be an overwhelming wave? Obviously, we all hope not. I don't think it will be. I mean, obviously, we have pretty significant vaccination rates. We have a huge proportion of people that were infected earlier on in our Omicron wave who've recovered. And obviously we have to acknowledge the protective benefit that that affords people. Uh, So, you know, but but on the other hand too, I think, I I don't think anyone can look anyone else in the eye and discuss with certainty what the weeks ahead will look like. But I think it's fair to say that, yeah, we will have an uptick in cases. That's, That's pretty clear. And we're seeing, you know, if you look at New York, if you look at some of the major cities in the United States where where maybe BA2 arrived prior um, to, to to where it's getting more prominent in Toronto and the GTA. Um, yeah, they've got they've got more cases, but hospitalizations 
and deaths, I know those are lagging indicators, of course they are, um, are are at a reasonable level. I think hospitalizations are the lowest level they've been uh, since prior to vaccination in some U.S. cities. So there are some positives and, and we can't we got to be measured and calm and not overreact to cases, not even overreact to test positivity, because like you said, it, it, it was it was it got impossible with Omicron, didn't it, to try and trace this down and, and be and yeah. be constantly testing asymptomatic people. That was there. That's not free either. I'd rather resources went to monoclonal antibodies and, and yeah. talking more about some of the, the, the prominent things we can do to help the sick, not test, not test the unsick. Right. Like, I wouldn't start randomly testing totally asymptomatic people. On the other hand, listen, if you're sick, it'd be nice to have tests available rather than mm-hmm. uh, rapid tests. And I think we could do more to expand some of the testing in the province without having, you know, people routinely going who feel completely well without any obvious exposures going for PCR tests. I mean, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, and the other interesting thing, too, is if you look at the European situation, uh, you know, obviously Europe's a, a big place and, and they're having, you know, different epidemics in different parts of different countries. But they, they're they always a few weeks ahead of us, and they certainly had an uptick in uh, cases and hospitalizations associated with that. But in many of those European settings, it actually was a small wave, and now things are trending in the downward trajectory after a short wave. You know, obviously it's still early. You still got to watch this. But, you know, if we're going to have something re- reflective like that, you know, perhaps, keyword, perhaps, yeah. this is a, a short, smaller wave that doesn't impact Ontario as significantly as other waves have. One other point, too, you know, you kept hearing, people weaponize words all the time. You kept hearing about how Omicron's mild, it's mild, it's mild. Like, let's just be honest about what these terms mean. You know, Omicron when you compare an Omicron infection pound for pound with, for example, a Delta infection, yes, people are less likely to land themselves in hospital. They are. Mm-hmm. It is milder in Ontario settings. There's excellent data to demonstrate that. But on the other hand, you know, it doesn't mean milder doesn't necessarily mean mild. And when, you know, a third of your province gets this infection over a two and a half, three month period of time, you're going to have a lot of illness, a lot of hospitalizations, and a lot of deaths. And in fact, we had more people in hospital with COVID-related illness during the Omicron wave than just about any other time during the pandemic. So, you know, multiple things can be true. It's how we frame these terms accurately. And uh, and I think that's a key point that often got missed. A hundred percent. And you and I have talked about not just the transmissibility of that of, of Omicron, but the notion that, look, one-size-fits-all health recommendations are are just really hard to give. You would never go in for a checkup with your, like me in my 40s, I would never go in with my 78-year-old parents and my 13-year-old kid and say, give us all the same advice. We would never yeah. we would never do that for a general checkup. So yeah, um, what, right. it, what is going to be mild for my 13-year-old might not be mild for my 78-year-old uh, uh, mom. Of, uh, of course not. I know we, uh, we chatted briefly, and I know we only got a couple minutes about pediatric vaccines, the potential that Moderna, now maybe they don't even get that emergency use approval based on some of the percentages, but our Ontario pediatric vaccine uptake for our listeners, five to 11, two doses as of yesterday was about 32%, five to 11, one doses, 55. I know we chatted briefly uh, off air about it a few days ago, but I, 
I don't know that we would get to those numbers on an uptake, but at least we want to give parents the choice. Parents want to say, well, all my kids are vaccinated or I really want to vaccinate my three year old before I take him to dig. I get it. That's a choice. And uh, and but I don't know how close we are to getting getting this approved. Moderna wasn't even approved for um, for under 18 in the United States, obviously. Right. Yeah. I mean, I still think it's a while away. Uh, mm-hmm. Like We're talking if it goes through, it's going to be months. Uh, Health Canada is a little more conservative than uh, the regulatory bodies in the USA. We look at the data a little bit longer, a little bit closer. We don't just copy and paste what they do. And in fact, our recommendations are are slightly different from from theirs as well. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think at some point this will come through. And just like before, we'll see some parents stampeding to get their kids vaccinated. And we'll probably see others uh, take their time. And then we'll probably see some who are going to say, you know what, this is this is not for us. I think one thing to, when we look at the Moderna data that's available for the mm-hmm. for the uh, you know under six crowd, it's clear that it, it, it you know the, the effectiveness or the efficacy, I guess, is a more technical term, is like you know not amazing. It doesn't prevent infection, but that's not surprising. Like it's only about thirty to forty percent. That's not surprising. No. Remember that. Kids in that age group tend to not get as sick compared to adults, but of course, some can and some do. And the more kids with underlying medical conditions are more likely to. I agree, like, it'd be amazing to have an option to vaccinate that crowd because parents might want to do that and because some kids might have the potential to get that sick. If this study was big enough, mm-hmm. which it wasn't, you'd probably see some benefit in preventing severe illness like hospitalization and ICU stay. And, 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 you know, obviously pediatric deaths can happen, but they're very, very rare. Loved having you on and love our conversations. Dr. Bogosh, have a great weekend. Thanks for making the time for our audience. You will. Take care. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh. You know, I stayed up late and watched uh, Canada, Costa Rica last night. I think I called it Costa Rica till I was about like 30. I didn't know. Uh, you know, sometimes you, uh, you know, you, you transition into knowledge and you know better. And now I know it's Costa Rica. I, uh, I'm just trying to improve as a person. But uh, we often would lose to uh, countries like this. We'd lose to Costa Rica and we'd lose to Honduras. Remember, we were there and lost 8-1 uh, to Honduras. I remember watching that game live going, the goals will stop at some point in time. Nope. Uh, <laughs> it, did, it didn't happen. We were trying to get to the hex uh, back in CONCACAF. So I follow this stuff really well. And I remember being a... A 14-year-old kid in the summer of 1986 when Canada qualified for the World Cup and we played France in the first game um, and and we were really giving it to France for a while and then they scored a late goal. We didn't score a goal against uh, Hungary or the Soviet Union. Don't have to worry about that uh, this time around, do we? Um, but we're going to make it and Canada will host Jamaica at 4 o'clock at BMO Field now on Sunday and um, in essence, a draw gets them through but this game's been sold out for ages. We've seen the response in Edmonton. We saw the response in Hamilton, right? Middle of the winter in January, um, even before the Super Bowl was happening and uh, just an amazing, amazing occurrence. I There's unthinkable things in sport and we've had so many great moments in Canadian sport, not just Olympics, but Mike Weir wins the Masters. You don't think you're going to see that as a little kid, right? A, a kid from Sarnia winning the Masters. Bianca Andreescu beating Serena Williams in her place in New York City. Um, and winning the 2019 U.S. Open. So we've had some amazing moments. We're very pleased to welcome on a Liberal MP and the Minister of Sport for our federal government, Pascal Saint-Ange, uh, joining us on Toronto Today. Pascal, thank you very much for making the time for our audience, um, and we appreciate you coming on. 
Well, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I'm really happy to be with you this morning. So I lay all that out. You probably had a, a late night, a little bleary eyed. And um, it would have been nice to clinch last night for Canada. It would have been nice to know uh, that there's certainty, but it makes for a great atmosphere. I know you're uh, going to the match on, on Sunday, as am I. It makes for a great atmosphere at a sold out BMO field playing uh, Jamaica on Sunday, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it's so exciting. And uh, I believe that they, uh, they uh, kept the best for Sunday uh, against Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited to, to join the city of Toronto to watch that game and cheer on our men's team. And I really hope for a victory on that game. It would be so amazing to share that with all of, uh, all of Toronto. You know, I lay all that out about what it was when I was younger, you were younger, our listeners were younger. And sometimes on the world stage, right, we felt like pedestrians were like, well, we're really good at hockey. We're really good at men's and women's hockey. And, and we sure know how to curl. But tennis, golf, soccer, um, can we play with the best in the world? Suddenly, and, and I think this is full credit to your government, governments before you, a lot of infrastructure built in uh, in a nation of 35 million people. We can play with these other cut. We can play. We're, we're going to a tournament that Italy didn't qualify for in November yesterday. That's unthinkable stuff a few years ago. Absolutely. And we also have to speak about the the Raptors uh, on the basketball scene. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Well. So, yeah, we have uh, amazing Canadian teams and uh, the government for sure has invested quite a bit of money after uh, uh, 20, uh, 2011 uh, for elite sport to, to make sure that uh, our uh, athletes have the best support to perform on international stages. And we've seen during the last Olympics also how well our team did, especially the women's team uh, in yeah. soccer, in hockey, and, and you know, so yeah, we can be really, really proud of our sports system. And at the same time, um, you know, we, we have challenges in uh, making sure that the Canadian population goes back to physical activity uh, after this, uh, this pandemic. So, uh, but yeah, great time for, uh, for us all watching our athletes. I know. Okay, so you're at the you're at the game Sunday, and I want to talk about some of the the issues and and where we're going because we're obviously hosting, uh, being part of a joint bid with the U.S. and Mexico that was won. So we'll host World Cup soccer games um, at BMO Field and a couple other venues. I want to get to some of that, but you brought that up with the Olympics. We had all our Olympians play um, their sport, compete in their sport in Japan in the summer, uh, China just recently in the winter in front of empty crowds and. Um, they did amazing given some of the circumstances, some of what we've been through with with COVID. Obviously, the health and safety of Canadians, the biggest priority. And, and you know how it goes as a politician. We, you know, we can debate and dis dispute. Should this have been open? Should this have been closed? And a lot of that is provincial jurisdiction, I should dictate. But our athletes, um, the perseverance, the adversity, the where am I going to train? Can I keep up with everything? Everything they had to go through. I, I, I think we'll look back on this and be so proud of them, maybe more than other Olympics that were normalized oh yeah absolutely and i had the chance to speak with uh, many athletes before they left for the games the beijing games and uh, you know they all told me about um, all the changes that they went through uh, in the past two years to keep on training and uh, reaching that high level of, of performance and excellence um, and the government has uh, invested a lot more money also to support uh, the Canadian team through uh, those new challenges. Um, so, and they face uh, being a whole lot more isolated than before uh, while they train, uh, being away from their family. And uh, you know what, what their most stressful moment was before the game? 
Yeah. What, what, it was actually, it, it was actually just testing negative. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so they can take the plane and fly to the game. So, you know, it's unusual challenges and they did amazing. Incredible. Uh, we're t- speaking with Pascal Saint-Ange, a Liberal MP, and she's the Minister of Sport uh, for Canada on Toronto Today. Canada hosts Jamaica. A tie, uh, rather a draw or a win, gets us through to play in Qatar in the World Cup in November. So um, let's talk about 2026, because in Toronto at BMO Field, where a bunch of us uh, listening will be on Sunday afternoon, their capacity right now is 30,000. There has to be some infrastructure um, step-ups and, and improvements, if you will, to expand for the World Cup, what are some of the specifics? We don't know all of them, but what are some of the specifics that have to be done to BMO Field in the next four years, Pascal? Well, to be honest, uh, the mayor, John Tory, would know more about this than Mm -hmm. I do, about all the expansion and the work that needs to be done in the stadium. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I can say is that uh, we are working with the City of Toronto and the province of Ontario on the overall cost for the event. And, um, you know, we're working on the plan uh, with them so that to make sure that uh, we can host in the most uh, high fashion uh, this uh, FIFA event uh, so that uh, as many spectators as possible can enjoy the game and and watch and also meet uh, the FIFA requirements. Um, So we're still working on the project. Um, There's still time to go until 2026 and we're going to be ready for sure. There's other cities um, involved. I know Montreal and Vancouver didn't put bids in. Um, Olympic Stadium's a little bit dilapidated. It's older. Um, But Edmonton did a great job hosting a few qualifying games already. Uh, Canada beat Mexico up at Commonwealth Stadium Edmonton. Are there other venues besides Toronto and Edmonton that will host World Cup games? Again, I know we don't, nothing is confirmed, but which direction is that leaning towards? Yeah, nothing is confirmed yet, uh, but the government is working with every city that uh, wants to put a bid. Um, We know that Edmonton and Toronto are uh, in the lineup, and uh, we believe that uh, Vancouver is also trying to get back in the race. Um, So we're working with provincial and municipal governments uh, to work with them on their plan and their bid, and uh, so far it's going great. So I can't wait to see uh, which city will get chosen. Uh, we're for sure cheering for Toronto also. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, we're, we're coming into to such an important time uh, in terms of uh, this development. You brought up the pandemic, and, and I want to leave on this note. There's obviously a lot of parents that want to make sure uh, their kids continue playing sport. It, it was, Pascal, you're well aware that um, we often have drop-offs of of kids when they become teenagers and it's understandable right they play less sport they get to part-time jobs they start dating they get driving they're they're focused on university a lot of factors as to why we leave sport but we don't want cost to be a big factor as well i know that's a priority of the federal government i know that's a priority of a lot of independent um, businesses and organizations as well to make sure and say we want to give you the choice but we sure don't want the dollar figure to be why you can't play a sport at the grassroots level right Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we all realize how difficult it's going to be to get kids back into physical activity after they've been, um, you know, after they left. Uh, most, a lot of them couldn't uh, be active during the pandemic mm-hmm. for different reasons. So uh, it's going to be a challenge. And the federal government is working with the provinces and the territories on this issue. And also, uh, we, uh, I announced uh, an $80 million investment uh, in uh, community sports, especially for underserved communities. 
Um, and uh, so it's going to be across Canada. It's our uh, national organizations that are that have um, grassroots links with uh, local and community organizations that are going to work on programs so that this summer our kids can go back to being active and having a great variety of uh, sports and activities that they can do uh, to you know get them back into um, physical activity activity because we know how important it is for development also for mental health and physical health I love the sound of that uh, as a as a parent and uh, and and watching kids play and watching neighbor neighbor kids play. It's just it, it and especially after the last two years, it's so vital. Would you, when you as you leave us, would you like to give a prediction on the score? On I'm not going to hold you to this. Isn't going to come back and haunt you next election. I promise. Like we'll, we'll destroy if you get it wrong. Just, I'm not going to hold it against you. We won't let the opposition parties use it. Do you want to guess at the score on Sunday? Uh, the score, well, I can say that I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Canadian team is going to win. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go for a 2-1 win. I like it. No, and maybe even Jamaica scoring first. That'll create some tension. We'll all get a little nervous and, uh, and, uh, oh, and, yeah. and, and, uh, hunker down together and, and be ready to explode when they get the next two goals. Hey, thank you very much for making the time. I think this is uh, going to be so much fun on Sunday and we all want to be back together in a, in a group cheering and, and in a safe environment. And we are, thank you very much for the time today thank you and i hope to see you on sunday greg you got it okay we can arrange that pascal saint Ange joining us uh on uh, toronto today keith phipps uh joins us it's great to have you on we obviously booked you and i didn't know about the book but you've got a fan for life now that you've written a book about nicholas cage congratulations on that first of all Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it was it was a, a year spent watching Nicolas Cage movies a lot. That was a year, to be honest. Um, I I think I get into Saturday Night Live rabbit holes sometimes. So when I see uh, Nick Cage beside Andy Sandberg, Andy Sandberg doing an impression of Nick Cage, have you seen that on Weekend Update? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> the thing was like, it, it's funny if you watch them in a row, they get kind of like. They get progressively meaner, and then he shows up at the end. I think that kind of kills the character mm. <laughs> once Nicholas Cage himself shows up. My, uh, since you love movies as much as I do, my my theory often in movies is many of the movies that win these awards or even get nominated, you sure as hell can't watch a second time. Like Manchester of the Sea. I think both the movies Hillary Swank won for, Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby, tough watches. Nick Cage leaving Las Vegas, that's a tough movie to watch a second time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't I hadn't seen it in like twenty some years when I watched it for this. I mean, I think it's a really good movie, but yes, it, it is it's something to put yourself through. So some of these, um, you just look even at at betting odds. Some of these uh, categories look like they are, uh, you know, if these are fetacom, please. You write on GQ.com that it's a wide open race for best actress. So that excites me. And there's obviously a lot of big stars. Like we're we're gonna we're gonna stick for this category because almost every name involved. There's no unknowns. There's no newcomers. These are five known commodities, whether they're young or old. That's true. I mean, absolutely. It, it, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of races that could go anyway. Honestly, almost, and it's coming down to the last minute for it. So when we got Jessica Chastain, Olivia Coleman, Penelope Cruz, who's won before, Nicole Kidman, obviously, has won uh, once before, and Kristen Stewart making this entry. A lot of people are now, a lot of people in my little universe are starting to see Spencer and really liking it. Um, is there anybody that, that comes to the forefront and you go, well, despite there not being an obvious choice, this is, this is the likely winner? Is it between two? Or is it between three for Best Actress? So my experience with um, 
Olivia Coleman and the Lost Daughter was like I had that movie was something I, I was aware that was coming out and I was looking forward to, but it wasn't really um, on my until I saw it. I didn't realize how amazing that performance is, and I feel like you know she is she's beloved and uh, is undeniably fantastic work. So uh, you know, th- that might be the one that sneaks in. Maybe these are like they're getting to be more like elections in a way in that we think somebody will win and then they don't when Academy, uh, you know, Academy voters come along and we think, well, it's this person's time. Like we felt that way. Um, my recollection is we felt that way with uh, with Glenn Close for the wife. We're like, well, that's a sure thing. And she hasn't won it. So this is her moment. And then Olivia Coleman comes up with the favorite a movie. Very few people saw compared to the wife. Um, but but that happens from time to time, right? The, I, you know, a lot of these actor categories, they're harder to predict than they used to be. It's Yeah, absolutely. I, I followed the race you know, since I was a kid, mm-hmm. one form or another. And the more I read, the more I realize it's kind of, you know, no one really knows. <laughs> we kind of like, everyone reads each other and, and, uh, uh, and, and the consensus kind of forms. And then that's how surprises happen when people, when there's too much consensus around something. So who knows? Keith Phipps is our guest film and television writer, uh, and his uh, Oscar piece is on GQ. Does this feel, let's go to actor, for Will Smith. Sometimes um, actors, it feels like by design, and people say, well, this is his big shot at the Oscars. Now, I would have made the case that that was there for Ali, and then I've talked about this on the show, Denzel Washington so freaking brilliant in training day as Alonzo that that mm. there's just that was just still the most undeniable and we talked we were talking before you came on about movies that don't hold up performances that don't stand the t- training day you can put on right now and I could watch it like it was the first time again him and Ethan Hawke are brilliant and it's a great script does this feel like that for Will Smith that it's almost that almost like DiCaprio for The Revenant right it's a now or never moment it feels like for Will Smith He's been circling around it for so long. And, and, yeah, and I agree, Washington is so good in training day. But mm-hmm. I love that Ali performance, too. I mean, I mean, uh, it, Will Smith has such a strong public persona. Like, you know, this is a charming guy you see in interviews, uh, although one of his weird things sometimes. But you kind of forget how, he, how much he disappears into a role. So, you know, it, it, it would be nice to see him uh, awarded at some point. I mentioned the power of the dog. Uh, will it be an utter shocker if anything else wins Best Picture? You know, if you asked me a week ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who writes about, about uh, Oscar for Vanity Fair, and she said the same thing. Um, you know, it would be a, a lock. But, you know, there's a steady drumbeat of CODA. CODA, yeah. Times, people catching up with CODA. And CODA, I, not my choice for best picture. I think it's a really charming film. But it's one of those films that it's hard not to like. And sometimes that's enough. You know, there's kind of if if there's enough warm feeling around something, you know, it, it, it becomes kind of a, like you know, no one's gonna. It may not be you know, anyone's uh, first thought, but it's, it's you know, a lot of people. If it's a movie that a lot of people like, it's gonna sneak in there sometimes. Do I have this right, Keith? Do the movies feel uh, a touch more uplifting? There's heavy subjects, that's for sure. Don't look up is a freaking heavy subject and has polarized a lot of people. Some people loved it. Some people uh, abhorred it when they watched it. I watched Belfast last Friday night. I love Kenneth Branagh. And I'm like, it's a really good movie, but it didn't. It, I, I, maybe I thought the reviews were so good. I watched him get interviewed by Bill Maher. I thought it would change my life. And I just really liked it. But but it, I, I thought it left me with something at the end. And King Richard's obviously uplifting because of what the Williams sisters persevered for. I feel like we really dug down in the middle of the pandemic last year and we thought, Boy, these are a lot of heavy films that were uh, Nomadland, The Father. Um, there, there were Sound of Metal, a lot of heavy movies last year compared to this year, maybe. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but looking at this list, 
you know, obviously the world ends, spoiler, and don't look up. Uh, but and, and, uh, but the, even like Power of the Dog, it's kind of a happy ending. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, um, it's not the not the saddest possible ending. I, I, you know, you mentioned Belfast. I thought Belfast was kind of, I you know, was kind of going to do what Coda might, where it's like you know maybe not every anyone's. Yeah, and people don't necessarily get passionate about it, but people like it. It's it's a nice movie, you know. Uh, but it seems like that never really kind of caught fire the way it would need to. It's weird too, isn't it? Because I, I was mentioning that earlier, um, and since you followed it for for so long, we have we we get stuck in that moment, and a movie builds that mo- you know momentum, and, and it's a moment. It'd be like if we look back at number one singles, and we're like, wow, like how did how did that happen? Oftentimes, uh, an artist in, with a, a catalog. Their most popular song could be something that that hit number twenty two, and it's not the number one hit. It does feel like that happens a lot with with best pictures that they don't. Necessarily, there's the famous English Patient Fargo year, or people thinking when Crash won that it wasn't even one of the best. It wasn't all of the other four nominees were better. Is there? Do you have any theory as to why why we get it wrong and we get sort of get stuck in that moment and that that movie does not persevere over time? We, we, yeah, it is strange how that happens. How it, it's they feel like maybe feel like all timers at the moment, but they are. I mean, I, I I think the artist is a perfectly charming movie. Mm-hmm. Argo is really strong, but are those the best movies of the that year? Are you going to watch that over? You know, even you're going to watch Argo over Django Unchained or Lincoln or something? Probably not. And I do think it's kind of you know what we're talking, what I've been talking about before. How how like nice. Movies tend to, to, to slip in, but you know, on the other hand, Nomadland, Parasite. These are we have Green Book in 2018, but then Parasite's mm-hmm. not exactly a feel-good story, or or Nomadland. But maybe <laughs> we're trending in the other direction now. Maybe the biggest bummer will win uh, of the of the bunch. Maybe Nightmare Alley will sneak in. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Uh, Keith Phipps, uh, his works on GQ.com. He's got this book on Nicolas Cage uh, coming out that uh, we love the concept of. Congratulations and good luck with the book, and thanks for spending time with us previewing Sunday night. Absolutely, anytime. Urs here is with us, conservative activist. It's great to have you back. Thanks for doing this. Hi, thanks for having me back. And the man, Alan Cross, musicologist, host of the ongoing history of new music and a journal of musical things. Alan. Good morning. Good morning. By the way, Alan, let me start with you. I Give us 30 seconds. I, I saw yesterday about the passing of uh, Peter Goddard, and I would read Peter Goddard and then eventually Peter Howell all the time in the star. I would I would give my parents... Crap, I can say that uh, if they didn't bring home Friday's paper because there'd be uh, the chum charts would be in there for the singles and albums. I'm like, what do I need to go to the to the record store and buy? And I'd read Peter Goddard and Peter Howell and Peter just, you know, like, and, and you mean this to a lot of people, too. I'll say that. But Peter Goddard meant the world to a lot of us, us kids and teenagers learning about music in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, when everybody got a newspaper delivered at home, one of the first things that uh, you would do is go to the entertainment section, see what Peter had to say. And uh, I would, uh, you know, before my, my radio shows, I would uh, seek out the star. I would uh, look up what Peter was writing about, and I would incorporate that into my body of knowledge. So, yeah, his passing is, is, is really quite sad and um, certainly a milestone in the um, history of journalism, of entertainment journalism in Toronto. Yeah, it's not it's not done quite that way anymore, and certainly not in the papers, but Peter was uh, was a legend. Um, Urs, let me start with you on, uh, on where we're at with 
with COVID. And a lot of people say, well, this virus, it's so political, every reaction to it, whether it's the federal mandates with what we saw in Ottawa, whether it's leading into a provincial election and, and opening things up a little bit. So even if we see, we're starting to see a lot of uniformity about the potential for an uptick in hospitalizations. Okay. But but you've even got Peter Uni on the science table last week kind of shrugging his shoulders saying, we think we can handle it. We've got a lot of doctors in line with that saying we think we can handle it. So it just feels like if we don't take those forward steps now, like when when will we? It, it, it just feels like we've we've crossed a bit of a crossed a bit of a threshold here. What's your thought on it? Yeah, I think we needed to move forward with with um, handling COVID, and you know, everywhere in the world, you know, everyone's been moving forward. We've been going, you know, trying to normalize our life. And, you know, I do see people still getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've had a few of my friends, uh, you know, tell me that they got COVID last week. And it's, you know, while we're thinking we're safe, we're not really still safe. But I think the thing is, we're not seeing a severity of cases. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, we're hoping that, you know, we can normalize our, our life and and be safe. You know, it's nice to see that people were still wearing masks, but some people weren't wearing masks. Uh, you know, I went to work and, you know, there were signs where you had to, you know, it said, you know, you don't have to wear masks anymore, but respect those who are wearing masks. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, change is difficult, but I think people are willing to see progress and, uh, and us moving forward with regards to the COVID pandemic and, and the virus. Alan, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because um, I, I know you talked about um, y- your uh, ability and your desire to um, kind of keep dodging and weaving. And, and I, you know, I, I get it and I'm I'm with you and I, I see a lot of that. And, and yet you see all this, you know, we're going to we're going to hopefully have a normal tiff this fall. We're going to have the concert season and lots of shows coming up. And it's tricky, right? I think there's there's people that are either like, I'm going to get this probably at some point in time. And there's people kind of um, thinking, I, I still want to avoid it at all. I know my parents are the, are like that in their mid seventies. They want to avoid it at all costs, but they don't want my thirteen year old compromised anymore with restrictions because it's been two years. Like we all just, uh, we're, we're all just trying to do our best. I really want to get back to normal too. Um, my personal issue is that in two weeks I'm traveling to Thailand, and I'm going to be tested upon arrival for yeah. um, um, for COVID. So I could spend all this money and go all this way and then end up being rejected as soon as I arrive because I wasn't careful. So I'm going to be very paranoid and very, very careful and very, very isolated for the next two weeks so I don't ruin this trip. But I, I, you know, I'm, I'm watching the, the data and I'm seeing things tick up a little bit. If you look at the wastewater analysis in various parts of the GTA, I live in Oakville, and uh, if you look at the wastewater analysis, uh, traces of COVID seem to be ticking up, and that's also happening in the eastern part of the GTA. And you know, I would have been, I think, a little bit more comfortable if these restrictions had come off two weeks after spring break, because everybody had been mm-hmm. traveling, everybody had gone to the states, everybody had gone other places. I think I would be a little bit more confident if, and this is just me, I hardly a you know an epidemiologist, but I would have been a little bit more confident to see uh, another two weeks, but. Uh, you know, the world has decided collectively that we're moving on, whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, we'll see. But there's, I think, inevitably going to be a tick up. Fortunately, though, 
the the symptoms don't seem to be as bad. I just got a text from a friend of mine last night. Her daughter came home mm. after being out with some girls and uh, yeah, tested positive, and, and she had you know triple vaxxed. Mm-hmm. Very careful, and she's got an older. You know, it's so everybody's got their own level of paranoia. I think it's it's interesting. Urs Allen brings that up because to, a week from today, no more testing to come back into Canada. Allen documents that I, I had to go to Los Angeles. Super Bowl weekend, and I remember having to go right from the airport, right at LAX, go get a PCR test, pay 180 bucks because it was such a quick turnaround. And I didn't get that result back on my email until about eight hours before my flight. And I was stressing, like I th- I need that to get back in. I okay. wonder, I wonder if lifting that will will be the roadblock many residents are waiting for to to take that trip or go see that relative they haven't seen or or like we just haven't been able to start that level of normalcy yet. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that I think there are people that are just waiting for that PCR test requirement to be lifted. I myself traveled to the U.S. and had to get a PCR test and, and wait for those results. My actual results never came back. My husband's results came back first, mm-hmm. and then I had to get another one at the border. Uh, luckily, I had to pay $300. It was a little bit of a hassle, and but I do see people mm-hmm. traveling. People are tired of staying you know, when they have their kids, they're they're tired of staying, you know, at home. So there are people that are willing to pay that price to travel and go and visit relatives down south uh, on weekends. But, you know, I think the majority of people are just waiting for that restriction to be lifted so that they don't have to go through the hassle. It is a little bit of a hassle. And, and um, you know, I remember in back in, in January, you know, as uh, my friend is going to Thailand next week, um, I went, uh, I went to Dubai and I had to go through, you know, I had to isolate for a week before because everyone around me was getting, uh, the virus and yeah. I did not want to get that. So, you know, you have to take a lot of precautions when, when you're considering travel. Luckily, hopefully a week from today, we don't have to worry too much about that. Well, you're preaching the choir. My wife going to China for uh, Olympics uh, for the Globe and Mail. Uh, I was the only one doing groceries for five weeks. Or that was not a that was not a fifty fifty marriage for those five weeks. There was some little bit of tension, little bit of counseling. You know, little you know, we we could have used some uh, some marital therapy. With Alan Cross with Urs here, they're here for Chatterbox. Thanks again for listening to Toronto today. Have yourself a great weekend. We're back with a live show between five thirty and nine on Monday. We're bracing for some rough weather, of course, in the morning as well. Uh, rough, at least in terms of what we're used to in late March. But we'll get there. Have yourself a great weekend. Enjoy the soccer game if you're headed there. That's a big, big event on Sunday afternoon. And you can check us out live at 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app.